1: New season out on Spotify soon. This episode of Sports Criminals includes discussions of physical and sexual abuse involving a minor that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under
0: 13. For two days in June 2000, hundreds of amateur hockey players all over the world waited with bated breath for their names to be called in the NHL entry draft.
1: 19-year-old Mike Jefferson anxiously watched the television with his coach, David Frost. After nearly 10 years of hard work, the two men sat waiting to hear Mike's name called. He never expected to be the first overall pick, nor any first-round pick at that. He figured the second was his destiny.
0: But then the second round came and went, as did the third and the fourth. Mike's name still hadn't been called. He and his coach were getting nervous. Would he be picked? Or would he have to spend another year in the amateur OHL league? David Frost became
1: nervous as well. He had devoted all of his time and energy to developing Mike into a pro. And it appeared it may have been for nothing.
0: As the fifth round opened, Mike's hopes were beginning to wane. After the Anaheim Ducks took Peter Padradsky, it was time for the New Jersey Devils to make their next selection. Mike braced himself for disappointment, but then he heard the words he had been waiting for all day. The 135th pick was Michael Steven Jefferson.
1: Mike and Frost were both elated. For years, Mike had considered Frost a father,
0: and Frost considered Mike a son. Neither man would have expected that four years after this moment of victory, Mike would do the unthinkable. He would hire a man to kill David Frost. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport we'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played i'm tim johnson
1: and i'm carter roy you can find episodes of sports criminals and all other parcast originals for free on spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to stream sports criminals for free on spotify just open the app and type sports criminals in the search bar
0: at parcast we're grateful for you our listeners you allow us to do what we love Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: Today, we begin our dive into the troubled life of Mike Danton, a Canadian hockey player who attempted to hire a hitman to kill his own agent, David Frost.
0: This week, we'll dive into the complicated and sordid relationship Mike had with Frost and how it stemmed from his troubled home life.
1: Next week, we'll explore the attempted hit
0: itself and its strange aftermath. Mike Danton was never going to be the greatest hockey player in the game. A little too rough around the edges, he didn't have the grace that some of his contemporaries had. He was more of a pest, a player whose job was less about scoring goals than it was about getting into an opponent's head with trash talk or minor penalties.
1: But what Mike lacked in finesse he more than made up for in heart and raw passion for the game. With the help of his longtime coach, Mike was able to harness that passion and make it into the NHL, but it came at a price. He became increasingly paranoid that someone was after him. He let that fear take over him, and it cost
0: him everything. Like many Canadians, Mike Danton fell in love with hockey at a young age born mike jefferson on october 21, 1980 he and his father steve spent many late nights in their brampton ontario home watching any games they could find
1: and when mike was around six he told his father that when he got older
0: he was going to play in the nhl a failed hockey prospect himself when he was younger steve's life didn't quite go the way he had wanted He fell into petty crime and found himself in and out of jail, even when Mike was young. According to Toronto Sun journalist Steve Simmons, Mike's father eventually earned 11 convictions, including drug trafficking, drunk driving, and assault.
1: So when little Mike told his father that he was going to spend the rest of his life playing the game he himself loved so much, Steve was thrilled. He saw it as a way for his son to avoid the same brushes with the law that he had faced
0: growing up in brampton roughly 30 miles from toronto mike's favorite team was of course the toronto maple leafs but soon he ditched his love for leafs and found himself idolizing a single player steve eiserman of the detroit red wings in
1: 1986 21 year old eiserman became the youngest captain in red wings history known for being lightning fast on the breakaway and a deadly sniper from the blue line eiserman was the perfect player to look up to and soon mike would try to transfer what he saw on tv to the
0: ice at age seven mike graduated from the learn to play program and joined a minor youth hockey team called the chinkuzzi blues he wasn't the only future nhler on the team while playing with he made a lifelong friendship with eventual Tampa Bay Lightning right winger Sheldon Keefe.
1: And while the Chincuzzi Blues weren't the best team collectively, Mike and Sheldon proved to be the top players. This deadly one-two punch would carry
0: them on their journey to the pros. But trouble soon started brewing. During a tournament, Mike's father, Steve, got into a fist fight with another parent over the head coach's questionable lineup decisions for the championship game. The coach
1: stuck with his game plan and Shinkuzzi got stomped. Steve decided it was time for his son to find a new team.
0: After a successful tryout, Mike entered the Metropolitan Toronto Hockey League, where he played for the Toronto Red Wings. But upon joining the team, Mike and his family discovered the dark side of youth ice hockey.
1: Mike loved playing hockey, but in order to play, he had to get on the ice. Steve recalls Mike coming home from games in tears because he was hardly playing. Mike didn't understand why he was putting in so much effort at
0: practice just to sit on the bench. Mike wasn't the problem. It was his parents' checkbook Like many youth programs, hockey requires boosters or donations that allow a team to operate. For the Jeffersons, money was a struggle, and if they weren't able to pay, Mike wasn't going to play.
1: But when he did play, young Mike was a force to be reckoned with, and soon, his abilities transcended his family's financial
0: limitations. In the summer of 1990, when Mike was nine, he was selected to join the Red Wings' summer All-Star team. This honor was a highlight after years of hard work, but the consequences of Mike joining the All-Star team would be drastic, because during a game against the vaunted Brampton All-Stars, Mike caught the eye of the opponent's head coach, 23-year-old David Frost.
1: By the time their paths crossed, Frost had already built up something of an unsavory reputation in the hockey community. He was brash, rude, and intimidating. He had a hard time keeping a coaching job down because he liked to bend the rules as far as he could. Yet, Frost walked around with swagger and intimidation
0: that instilled confidence in his players. His coaching methods were questionable. It was well known that his teams engaged in more fighting than average, but at the end of the day, His players won. Despite his boorish behavior, Frost was a hockey savant.
1: When Frost laid eyes on Mike during that summer tournament, he saw a wildly undisciplined player with raw
0: passion and talent. Frost loved it. He immediately tried to recruit Mike for a new team he was getting ready to coach, the Toronto Young Nationals. But Steve Jefferson had reservations. Sure, Mike wasn't getting a ton of playing time with the Red Wings, but they were the best team in the league. Why leave a good situation?
1: But Frost was relentless. He even promised to make Mike the
0: team captain. Still, Steve wouldn't budge. However, as the next couple of seasons went on, both Mike and his father grew frustrated with the lack of ice time. Even though the team was winning, Mike wasn't contributing and for Mike, it was hindering his ability to develop into an NHL-worthy talent.
1: Finally, in 1993, Steve let 12-year-old Mike join Frost's young nationals. Unfortunately, Frost had already recruited Mike's longtime friend Sheldon Keefe and made him the captain, but he would make Mike the alternate.
0: It was obvious to the Jeffersons that Frost didn't care about donations or youth league politics. He seemed genuinely interested in developing the most talented kids into pros.
1: That summer, Frost decided to make Mike his special project. He pushed him harder than any coach before. Mike began to skate better, pass cleaner, and his accuracy improved. And for Mike, a rejuvenated sense of worth and joy entered him before the start of the season.
0: But it wasn't just Mike's skills that Frost had transformed. Almost immediately, he began to wedge himself between Mike and his family. During an early season game in Buffalo, Mike crashed into the boards, hard. For close to 30 minutes, Mike laid on the ice, crying out that his back was in pain.
1: After being taken into the locker rooms, Mike was joined by his distraught father. In hockey, parents are not allowed in the locker room, only players and coaches. Steve was committing a grave sin
0: suddenly frost came barreling in he yelled at steve demanding to know why he was in the locker room and as for mike he wanted to know why he was in the locker room and not with his team he demanded that mike put his helmet on and get back on the ice mike obeyed his coach's orders steve was shocked but
1: said nothing he watched mike leave even though he was in pain as steve jefferson tells steve simmons in the lost dream I gave him that power over my son. I let him decide. I got caught
0: up in the game." It was one of the first moves Frost made to take control of the young hockey prospect. Mike and Steve gave in wholeheartedly. They both believed that Frost would be Mike's ticket to the NHL. Unbeknownst to them, the consequences of this choice would have a tragic effect.
1: Coming up, Mike's junior hockey career takes off, thanks to Frost, but at the cost of his family. Now back to the story. In 1993, 12-year-old Mike Danton, still going by the last name Jefferson, was finally given permission by his father, Steve, to play for controversial coach David Frost.
0: Almost immediately upon joining Frost's Toronto Young Nationals, Mike was filled with a renewed motivation With an alternate captain title sewn onto his jersey, he was no longer weeping in his father's arms over the lack of time on the ice.
1: Specific details about Mike's time on the Young Nationals are scarce, but we do know that once Frost became his coach, his skills improved immensely. In Mike, Frost saw a kid who needed guidance and attention. He quickly came to regard Mike like a son. In fact, not long after he became Mike's coach, Frost moved with his wife and young daughters just down the street from the Jeffersons. Before long, Mike was a constant fixture in their home.
0: In Frost, Mike saw a father figure and protector, and he needed protection. Mike claims that Steve repeatedly hit him, his younger brother Tom, and their mother Sue. He says Steve was an angry man, and when he drank, he was even angrier and violent. In a 2011 ESPN interview, Mike insinuated that his father sexually abused him when he was young.
1: Steve Jefferson maintains that everything Mike says is false. While he doesn't deny that he drank too much and that he would get on Mike's case if he played poorly, he vehemently denies ever striking Mike or sexually abusing him.
0: Steve blames Frost for much of the verbal abuse he gave Mike. He claims that if mike had a bad game frost would tell steve to give his son a tongue lashing on the car ride home believing that frost had mike's best interests at heart steve followed his advice
1: at the next practice frost would ask mike if he had gotten a dressing down from his father after the previous game mike marveled at how his coach knew exactly what was happening behind closed doors No one realized that David Frost was actually manipulating the whole family.
0: As Mike got older, Frost's presence and influence became even more powerful. And soon, Mike was turning to Frost for help in more than just hockey.
1: When Mike was 13, he was arrested for shoplifting. Instead of calling his parents from his jail cell, he called his coach. When Steve found out, he told Mike he was getting kicked out of the house. That didn't bother Mike too much because he could just go down the street to Frost's house.
0: According to Toronto Sun reporter Steve Simmons, this became a pattern in the Jefferson house. Mike and Steve would get into heated arguments, and then Mike would run to Frost, often staying there overnight. Frost would throw gas onto the fire by badmouthing Mike's parents.
1: As all of this was going on behind the scenes, the Toronto Young Nationals were dominating on the ice. In 1996, they won the All-Ontario Bantam Championship.
0: But whatever momentum Mike and his teammates may have had coming out of the season quickly disappeared. On September 26, 1996, 29-year-old David Frost was indefinitely suspended from coaching in the Metropolitan Toronto Hockey League. And it appeared to be self-sabotage going
1: into the next season the team's top players like mike and sheldon Keefe were on the verge of turning 16. once they did they would move on to the next level of junior hockey and move on to new teams instead of losing his boys one by one frost wanted to make sure he kept them together
0: in order to do so david frost allegedly forged the signature of the young Nats general manager to release the older players from the team all at once since they were no longer on the young Nats. frost was able to shop them as a group to teams at the next level well frost denied that he forged
1: the signature but that didn't matter he was indefinitely suspended as coach and mike was no longer a young gnat if mike and the parents really wanted to They could have found a new team on their own, but Frost was so rooted into Mike's life that he went wherever the coach told him to go.
0: First stop was with the Bramley Blues. However, that stint lasted less than 10 games. No matter, because Frost was able to find a new home, Deseronto, about halfway between Toronto and Ottawa.
1: Mike and the Brampton boys, as they became known, joined the newly created Quinty Hawks. Before the Brampton boys arrived, the Hawks were one and four. However, once Mike and the others joined, the team went on an 11-game win streak. It wasn't just because Mike and the Hawks were better players. It was because
0: the league they were now in was an outlaw league. Outlaw leagues are basically any league that runs outside of the rules established by Hockey Canada. Basically, teams can recruit outside of town jurisdictions, charge parents exorbitant fees, and leagues can make up rules as they go along. Even though the hockey basics are still enforced, an outlaw league is essentially the Wild West. For Frost, it meant open season for his players. Mike and the
1: Brampton boys could play as rough and tough as they wanted, knowing there wouldn't be any kind of disciplinary action. Fights were constant with the Quinte Hawks, both amongst the players and in the stands. In the 35 games Mike played, he acquired 281 penalty minutes. To put that into perspective, hockey's greatest enforcer, Dave Schultz, holds the record for most penalty minutes in the single season at 472, and that was over the course of 76 games.
0: But if Mike and his team played rough, it's because Frost told them to. And on the bench, Frost was rough with his team as well. During the 96-97 playoffs, Frost had grown frustrated with Mike's hotel roommate, Daryl Tiveron. Frost's anger boiled over, and he punched the 20-year-old Tiveron in the jaw, right in front of a couple of off-duty police officers. Frost was arrested and charged with assault. Ultimately, though, he made a deal with the authorities and avoided jail time
1: despite avoiding any serious legal punishment the punch forced the league to suspend frost from coaching in a remarkable show of solidarity or the power he had over the kids the brampton boys mike included threw the rest of their games in protest and were quickly eliminated from the playoffs mike's time in Deseronto was over
0: but mike didn't see this divorce as a setback His loyalty wasn't to a team, it was to Frost. In fact, he trusted his coach even more than his parent.
1: When it came time for Mike to pick an agent, he sought out Frost for guidance instead of Steve and Sue. In the end, he
0: chose Mike Gillis to represent him as his career progressed. In 1997, at the age of 16, Mike Jefferson was drafted by Sarnia Sting in the Ontario Hockey League. Consisting of players between the ages of 16 and 21, the OHL is seen as one of the best junior leagues for amateurs hoping to make it into the NHL. Unfortunately,
1: Sarnia was aware of Frost's reputation and his influence over Mike. It was immediately apparent that Mike's mentor was going to continue being a problem. After 12 games, the organization traded Mike to the Toronto St. Michael's Majors, Frost decided to make this team his new home, despite not officially being their coach. And in Mike's second season with the majors, Frost managed to convince the team to acquire the rest of the Brampton boys,
0: including Mike's best friend, Sheldon Keefe. Despite playing well, the Brampton boys continued to show their loyalty to Frost over anyone else, including their actual coaches. Mike was constantly looking for fights, and it was obvious that none of the coaches had the power to stop him. Like Sarnia, the organization was fed up with Frost's presence. And in January 1999, 18-year-old Mike and the other three Brampton boys were traded to the Barrie Colts, 60 miles north of Toronto. Well, the next season would be Mike's best. The Colts
1: won the OHL championship. And over the season, Mike accumulated 41 goals, 69 assists, and 110 points, as well as 310 minutes in the penalty box. Mike's aggressive play, encouraged by Frost, led him to become increasingly arrogant both on and
0: off the ice. It all came to a head at the 2000 Memorial Cup, a round-robin tournament that's considered to be the championship of the Canadian Hockey League. As winners of the OHL championship, the Barry Colts were automatically invited to play.
1: Led by the Brampton boys, the Barry Colts were completely undisciplined and pompous, and Mike Jefferson was one of the worst offenders. In one game, Mike belittled a future pro player, Ramsey
0: Abede. In another, Mike got into such a bad fight that he was ejected from the game. In the lead up to the championship game, Mike spent his time trash-talking one of his opponents, Brad Richards. When the Colts lost 6-2, Mike refused to shake Richards' hand. This act of poor sportsmanship became the talk of the tournament and followed both Mike and Richards for years.
1: But thanks to David Frost's tutelage, Mike was able to brush off any criticism of his antics, especially during the Memorial Cup. Instead, he turned his full attention to showing the NHL
0: he was ready to become a pro. For the last three years, Mike had made sure that NHL teams saw him as an intense, gritty, and dedicated player. With Frost whispering in his ear off the ice, Mike knew that going into the 2000 entry draft, he was going to be a top prospect. Maybe not a first-rounder, but easily a second.
1: So it was a major personal disappointment when his name wasn't called until the fifth
0: round by the New Jersey Devils. But that disappointment subsided when it finally hit him that he, 19-year-old Mike Jefferson, was officially a pro hockey player. After dedicating his entire life to hockey and putting his complete trust in David Frost, Mike had made it. Since he was such a late pick, there was still a long road to actually playing for the Devils, but he had the chance to prove himself and he wasn't going to waste it.
1: As for David Frost, he felt like a proud father when he heard Mike's name called. For 10 years, he had devoted himself to molding Mike into the best hockey player he could be. It required him to drive a wedge between Mike and his family, but it paid off. Mike was a pro but the good times would quickly come to an end. And soon, the pressure to excel
0: would get into Mike's head. Coming up, Mike finds himself in the middle of a disturbing incident with his younger brother, and his arrogant antics make it hard for him to succeed in the NHL. Now back to the story. In June 2000, 19-year-old Mike Jefferson was drafted in the fifth round by the New Jersey Devils. With the help of his brash coach and mentor, 33-year-old David Frost, Mike was now a pro hockey player.
1: While Mike and Frost were closer than ever, Mike's relationship with his family had all but disintegrated. His father, Steve, was elated when he heard that his son was drafted, but when he finally got a chance to congratulate him in person, Mike barely said a thank you before leaving the house and returning
0: to Frost. This distance extended to the rest of Mike's family. Mike's younger brother, Tom, was 13 when Mike got drafted. And even though Mike was hardly around, Tom still couldn't help himself from idolizing him. When they were much younger, Mike would play with Tom as any older brother would. But lately, it seemed like Mike had no use for Tom. But not long after Mike was drafted, Mike invited his younger brother
1: on a trip to Frost's Cabin with the coach and some of Mike's old teammates. Steve Jefferson, who had seen his sons drift apart, thought that it was a good chance for
0: the two to reignite their relationship. But what should have been a fun bonding experience turned into two nightmarish weeks of torture. What follows is told from Tom's point of view in the book The Lost Dream, Mike, Frost, and the rest involved have all been silent on the matter.
1: Throughout the trip, Frost and the older boys berated and vilified Tom. They got him so drunk that he would pass out, not remembering what happened the night before. From what he did remember, Frost constantly criticized Steve and Sue Jefferson, calling them both pathetic drunks. Tom tried to defend his parents and looked to Mike for backup but Mike, who had already fallen for Frost's manipulation, only stared at his brother apathetically.
0: It wasn't just verbal abuse Tom faced, but sexual abuse as well. Over the course of the trip, Frost tried to force Tom into losing his virginity to some of the player's girlfriends, or made him dance around in his underwear.
1: One night, Tom was duct taped naked to his bed, All the while, everyone was laughing and taking pictures. It's unclear if Mike was personally involved in this. It is clear, though, that he did nothing to stop it.
0: After two weeks of abuse, Tom wanted nothing more than for all of it to stop. He began to think that if he just went along with it, Mike would respect him. Even then, Tom realized, perhaps Mike had to go through similar abuse. Perhaps because Mike had spent years with his coach and his teammates, he was numb to anything Frost demanded.
1: A few months later, pictures of Tom's abuse were discovered at Sheldon Keefe's parents' house. When the pictures were passed on to Steve and Sue Jefferson, neither could believe what they saw, their 13-year-old son naked and being laughed at
0: by Mike's coach and friends. When confronted by both the Jeffersons and the police, Mike said that Tom participated in the hazing out of his own volition. With his teammates telling the same story, no formal charges were ever made. The Jeffersons were heartbroken and outraged, and it finally dawned on Steve that Frost may not be the man he thought he was.
1: For Mike, it was more or less the nail in the coffin in his relationship with his parents. In a 2011 ESPN special report, Mike said that the only reason Steve and Sue went to the police was because Mike refused to give his father money. It was all an attempt to create a divide between him and
0: Frost. In reality, it was the complete opposite. When Mike officially signed with the New Jersey Devils, it was for over $1 million with a $75,000 signing bonus. Frost got it into Mike's head that his father wanted to take some of the money to cover tax payments. Steve didn't know about any of this until the cabin incident investigation. He denied that he wanted Mike's money, but the damage was already done. Mike was ready to sever ties with his family.
1: With a cabin incident in his rear view mirror, Mike turned all of his attention towards his first professional season of hockey. During his first training camp, Mike impressed the coaches and the organization, especially general manager Lou Lamarello. But like almost all late drafted rookies, he was sent to the Devils' affiliate minor league team, the Albany River Rats. When Mike was told about the transfer, he was less than pleased, but he sucked it up and devoted himself to getting back to New Jersey as quickly as possible.
0: That first season with the River Rats was a disaster almost from the start. Mike was constantly asking about his time on the ice and questioning which line he was being placed on, things that rookies are supposed to keep silent about. Coaches noticed that whenever practices or games ended, Mike was on his phone. Many believed he was talking with Frost. Mike played 69 of the season's 80 games, in that time, he scored 19 goals, 15 assists, and 34 points. But he racked up 195 penalty minutes as well. For two games in February, Mike got his shot at playing
1: with the Devils. But in those two games, he spent almost as much time in the penalty box as he did on the ice. It was obvious he wasn't ready.
0: But the Devils hoped that during the offseason, they could turn his attitude around. The higher-ups loved his passion, and even though Mike may have felt like he was wasting his time in Albany, he showed up to training camp in 2001 ready to play. Once again, Mike was outstanding during
1: training, but in the middle of the preseason, the world was shocked by the events
0: of September 11th. When the Jeffersons learned of the attacks, they immediately feared for Mike's safety. They weren't sure if their son was in the city when it happened. For that matter, they weren't even sure whether he was in New Jersey or in Albany. Their fears were amplified by the lack of communication coming from Mike. Finally, after a few days, Steve got a hold of his son. Mike told Steve that he was busy and that he would talk to him later. Mike never
1: called Steve back. And as of late 2012, those were the last words ever spoken between the two.
0: Mike's focus was getting ready for the upcoming season. But at some point during the preseason, he suffered a major setback. He tore his oblique muscle. The Devils decided to send Mike back to Albany to recover. Once he was ready to play again, he'd get some ice time with the River Rats before finally joining the Devils. Mike hated this plan.
1: On the last day of training camp, General Manager Lou Lamarello met with Mike to explain the situation. All the organization wanted was for Mike to get healthy and be at his best. All the details would be ironed out with Mike's agent, Mike Gillis.
0: But Mike informed Lamarello that Gillis no longer worked for him. If the GM wanted to talk about Mike's contract, he'd have to talk to his new agent, David Frost. When the meeting ended, Lamarello called Gillis to let him know he had been let go. Gillis was completely taken aback to learn he had been fired and that he hadn't even heard the news from Mike.
1: After that confrontation, Mike and Frost flew out to California to get a second opinion on the injury. In doing so, Mike failed to report to Albany at the start of the season. And as the days ticked away, he still didn't show up to play. Lou Lamarello saw no other option he suspended Mike for the entire 2001-2002 season. After learning this, Mike arrogantly told a reporter that he wasn't going to drink Lou's Kool-Aid.
0: But the season off served as a period of reflection for Mike. It seemed as if his time off the ice may have humbled him. Perhaps Frost, too, saw the suspension as a learning experience.
1: In July 2002, at the age of 21, Mike marked the transformation by legally changing his name to Michael Sage Danton. The name didn't seem to have any particular significance. Danton was the name of a kid Mike played youth hockey with, and Sage appears to be chosen at random.
0: But the underlying reasoning does have significance. Mike was making a statement. He no longer wanted anything to do with his family steve and sue didn't discover the name change until later that year while reading about their son in the paper
1: with a new name mike went into training camp ready to prove that he wasn't the punk kid he had been the year before he was more disciplined and ready to put the team above himself general manager lou lamorello was impressed so much so that he made the call mike would start the new season wearing
0: a new jersey devils jersey Mike quickly earned a reputation as a pest. Unlike goons, whose job is to get into fights, hockey pests throw off their opponents with psychological warfare. Whether it's through trash-talking or minor penalties like slashing and hooking, the pest's job is to get into a player's head, particularly the opposing goalie. But Mike did more than just agitate goalies. He scored on them. On October 12, 2002, The Devils faced off against the Columbus Blue Jackets in their home opener. By the middle of the first period, the Blue Jackets were up 1-0. In the 13th minute, Mike received a pass from teammate Turner Stevenson. With the puck in his control, Mike saw the perfect lane and launched it. The puck sailed through the air and right past the Blue Jackets goalie, Mark Dennis.
1: It was Mike's first professional goal.
0: The Devils would go on to win 3-2 but the honeymoon period quickly ended. The moment Mike stepped off the ice, he was always on the phone, the same as before. His teammates found it hard to connect with him. Soon, it was becoming such a distraction that the organization stepped in. After 17 games with the Devils, Mike was sent back to Albany. Once again, Mike ignored the order and flew to California.
1: While he was away in self-imposed exile, David Frost did his duty as an agent and tried to work out a trade with Lou Lamorello. Through their conversations, Lamorello was able to get a sense of how much control Frost had over Mike's career and his life. Frost would become highly volatile and abusive on the phone. And when Mike and Lamorello spoke privately, Lamorello got the feeling that Frost was dictating what Mike should say.
0: On June 21st, 2003, Lamarello gave in and traded Mike to the St. Louis Blues.
1: In true Mike fashion, he allegedly sent Lamarello the puck he had scored his first goal with. It was a symbolic gesture to divorce himself from the team, just as he did with his family
0: when he changed his name. The move to St. Louis changed everything for Mike Danton. He finally got the ice time he desperately craved and played in 68 out of 82 games. Though he only scored seven goals, his time in the penalty box dropped to 141 minutes. And, most importantly, Mike seemed to have a new lease on life. According to Blues head coach Mike
1: Kitchen, the team knew all about Mike's off-the-ice problems, especially the mysterious phone calls after practice and games. But Kitchen, like Lou Lamarello, wanted to make Mike part of the Blues family. Mike seemed to want that too. He got along with his teammates in St. Louis much better than he did in New Jersey. But what no one knew, not even Frost, was that Mike was beginning to struggle internally. Whether it was his own newfound sense of success or pressure from Frost to not waste another chance,
0: Mike was becoming anxious and soon paranoid. This period of Mike's life is all fairly murky. Mike, in an interview with ESPN, says that a mixture of painkillers, stimulants, uppers, and downers are what made him paranoid and brought out his inner demons. It's unclear exactly when he began mixing these drugs, but prescription painkillers aren't uncommon in the hockey world where players are injured every day. It's easy to see how an innocent pill for pain management could have spiraled into an addiction. Then, to keep himself energized, uppers came into the mix. Taking any drugs or meds without a doctor's supervision can have serious side effects. Combining them only amplifies the risk. And for a young athlete in a high-pressure career who's just been moved halfway across the continent with little in the way of social support, it's unsurprising that the drugs sent him into a dark spiral.
1: Mike managed to hide this internal conflict from everyone, especially his team. In fact, Coach Kitchen claims that by the time the 2004 playoffs started, Mike was more outgoing and actually making friends with his team.
0: But unbeknownst to all of them, it was right before the playoffs in April that Mike sank to his lowest. He had become convinced that someone was trying to kill him. It's unclear when or why this idea came into his head, but the feeling completely took hold of him.
1: Instead of focusing his attention on his first-ever NHL playoff series, he was consumed with thoughts of death and of the hitman he believed was after him. In Mike's head, there was only one way to survive. Kill the man who hired the hitman.
0: And so, in early April 2004, Mike Danton began plotting a murder. His target... David Frost.
1: Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. Next week, we'll explore Mike Danton's attempt to kill his mentor and agent, David Frost. Among the many sources we used, we found The Lost Dream by Steve Simmons to be helpful in our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskin, and Carly Madden. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.